everyone. This is your host, Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Season 3 of Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Ron Terwilliger, a man who has made an outsized contribution to the real estate industry, particularly in the apartment sector as well as affordable housing. This will be a two-part interview, something we haven't done before, starting today with hearing about Ron's career and leadership at Trammell Crow Residential and becoming one of the most influential creators of the modern apartment business. We'll talk about his career at Trammell Crow Residential and how he truly spawned the next generation of the business. Next week, part two of the conversation will focus on Ron's philanthropic work in affordable housing. Before we get started, I'm pleased to announce that we have a new sponsor for this season. Our partner, JLL, is a leading professional services firm that specializes in real estate and investment management. Their mission aligns perfectly with our podcast. We want to tell the stories of the industry's leading voices, and the people of JLL are leaders in the industry worldwide. During each episode, we'll hear briefly from a JLL thought leader relevant to the interview discussion. Christine Espenshade, a multifamily specialist with JLL Capital Markets, will give her perspective on the apartment business today. Now that we're in Season 3, I want to re-emphasize to our listeners the mission of Leading Voices. With each episode, we tell the stories of the real estate industry's great leaders and the impact they've had on this business. With the series, we aim to present the breadth of expertise and diversity of these leaders, who are often COOs for large corporations, but also leaders of startups, public servants, consultants and advisors, architects, planners, financiers, and more. This is a crazy big industry, and also what I believe to be a crazy impactful industry. Through the series, we're trying to tell the stories of our guests in a way that's meaningful to all of our listeners, both to established professionals in the business, as well as those still building their careers or starting their careers in the real estate business. So please continue listening and sharing Leading Voices. We'd love to hear how you're enjoying the podcast. Give us your feedback at leadingvoicespodcast.com or contact me directly at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Okay, now on to part one of Ron Terwilliger. So let's get started. Ron, first of all, we're here in your home on Long, I want to say Long Island. Long Island. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a strange place to be for someone who I just totally associated with Atlanta. Here you are, and we're in your beautiful dining room overlooking the sound, looking at Billy Joel's house, I think. Right, right. Yeah, no, I've been here since Fran and I got married 15 years ago. I moved from Atlanta to Long Island. I've been in Atlanta for 25 plus years. Right. My two daughters are there. My grandkids are there. My business is there. My staff was there. I mean, I loved Atlanta and Georgia, but Fran had young kids when we got married, so I had to move up here. Yeah, congratulations. So we have so much to talk about today, and and I really will want to focus in two, maybe three areas, kind of the, the Ron story. How did you get to where you got to? Two is, of course, we want to talk about the Trammell Crow residential years and the businesses that you built. Yep. And then your post-Trammell Crow residential career, which is really as a philanthropist, but as a leader in those nonprofits that you've been so deeply and generously involved with. Great. And want to talk about each of those. And But maybe the place to start is where, 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 did, where did you grow up and what were the seeds of of this life that you have now. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's it's kind of amazing to me to think about what happened to me because yeah. I grew up in a lower middle class family in Arlington, Virginia. My father's from New York, my mother from Washington DC area. Neither of them went to college. Uh-huh. And uh we had a 900 square foot three bedroom one bath home in Arlington, $5,000 home my father bought in 1941. But the great thing about it, life was simple growing up in the D.C. area in the 50s and late 40s. Public schools, as you might imagine, rode my bike to elementary school. High school was just so much fun for me. I was a student athlete in high school, basketball and baseball. Um, Pretty good Wakefield High School, pretty good high school. Uh Um, And because my parents... They actually never took me to see a college. They didn't go to college and could not afford to send me to college. I was fortunate to be recruited to play baseball and basketball at George Washington University. So I went there, interestingly, with two of my high school basketball classmates. We were third in the state in Virginia. And uh, I was there in 1958, 17 years old, October 10th, 1958. I woke up 
couldn't bend over, found out I had a back problem. Mm. I have what they call spondylolisthesis, which means the vertebrae shift in your lower back. My dad took me to a doctor who told me to get a steel rod in my back and never play sports again. As I tell people, well, I like girls. Sports was more important at that point in time to me. And it was the way I was going to get to college. GW selfishly told me to go live with my parents. They took away my room and board, told me to you know come back uh, when my back was better. Amazingly, I got a second opinion. And the doctor said, you do have that. But he treated it like inflammation and said, go rest it. So my back got better. I finished basketball and baseball at George Washington, but I was being heavily recruited by the Naval Academy. A, a kid I had played ball with in uh, high school, played ball against actually from WNL, right. was a star pitcher at Navy, and he was after me to come to Navy. And so I agreed to come, started over again. You know, you always start as a plebe or a freshman at Navy, no matter right. how many years. So you did one year at GW and then you go to the Navy. Yeah, it's almost like a prep school. It was really uh -huh. good for me, though. I got a little more mature in sports. And, you know, I learned some English, learned how to punctuate and, you know, to, to write better because, uh -huh. you know, I always was strong in math, but, but English, I really got a good year at GW. So I went to Navy, started over as a plebe. Right. I'll never forget, I was I weighed 195 when I went in. I was playing semi-pro baseball. There was an all-star high school team in Washington called Federal Storage. I was playing shortstop, and I had to leave there, go to the Naval Academy. At the end of the summer, we had parents' weekend. My mother came up with my dad, and she said, Son, you look terrible. They're trying to kill you. You need to come home. <laughs> I dropped from 195 to 168. Wow. And I was already in shape. I couldn't believe that. But nevertheless, I had nowhere to go. I wasn't going anywhere. I stayed at Navy, played basketball and baseball. Um, what was your position? I ended it's up more being of a, a baseball question yeah, than a basketball yeah, question but, for me. But but it's, in basketball, I ended up being an academic All-American. In basketball, um, I was shooting guard or small forward in basketball. In baseball, because I always thought the great athletes were shortstops, when they asked me what position I played, I said, I play second base. So I played second base all the way through college. Uh -huh. I had chances to play pro baseball, but my dad would never let me sign. He wanted me to go to the Naval Academy. And uh, so when you're out, you had a four. At that time, we had a four-year obligation. Mm -hmm. So I told the uh, academy I wanted to be an aviator. I haven't played two sports and done all the military for four years. They said, you're not physically qualified to be an aviator. Really? You have a bad back. Bad back came, comes back again. I had no idea they knew that. Uh -huh. And I also don't know why I couldn't sit in a you know, pilot seat. I'm a world-class sitter. I can sit with the best <laughs> of them. So anyhow, I didn't know what to do. And I stood high enough in my class to be able to choose a supply corps, which was the, you know, the uh, business arm of the Navy. And when I was at Navy Supply Corps School, I got a call from the admiral at Sublant said, I'd like you to come play basketball for a sublant in Norfolk, Submarine Forces Atlantic. We want to win the All-Navy. And I made a deal with him that I would play one year if he'd put me in the submarine supply program because I wasn't sure, you know, I'd, I wanted to get out. I still thought I might make the Navy a career. So I played one year for sublant. We did win the All-Navy. And then I went to submarine school and went on a Polaris submarine as the Blue Crew Supply Officer, the SSBN, uh -huh. Ballistic Missile nuclear sub Ben Franklin. Um, I spent first three quarters of a year in, in the yards in New London building the sub, and then I went on two patrols. First patrol out, submerged for 68 days. Second patrol, 64 days. A good question about that. I, two things I couldn't do. One is jump out of an airplane. Maybe you've done that I too. I have done that. And the second thing is I could not be submerged for 68 days. There's just no way. Yeah. Like, do you get, I, I'm like this nervous Jewish guy. Do you get freaked or anything when you're down there? Well, what? you know, when I do an MRI, I can't do a closed right. MRI. Right, so talk about that. But, you know, you're not that closed in a submarine. This was 425 feet long. You uh -huh. know, I could actually walk standing up, and I was 6'2 at the time. Uh -huh. um, but it was confining. I think you just get your mind right, you know, when, better. when, when you stand on, you know, you're not coming for 68 days. In fact, my wife and I, 
used to write letters. We wrote like nine letters to be delivered every week. I'd open one of hers every week, pretending, you know, we're now right. 30, just to break the monotony. And, I, you know, I had a little calendar. I'd mark X every day. You're on the submarine. You don't know whether it's day or night unless you go in the control room and it's rigged for red. And so, you know, I stood watch eight hours a day. I did my supply job two uh -huh. or three hours a day. Uh -huh. I played a lot of chess. I bet you did. Watched a few movies and slept. You know, I didn't want to do that for a career, which is one of the reasons I went in the Supply Corps anyhow. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be an aviator. I didn't want to go to sea because, you know, you're deployed away from your family so much. Right. I like that. When I finished there, they sent me to Naval Supply Center in Norfolk. I was the assistant director of the purchasing department. It was boring. I didn't really like my boss. And instead of him getting fired, he ended up getting promoted to captain. It was during Vietnam. And there was a real shortage. I resigned. They told me I couldn't resign. I had to stay another year. So I stayed for a fifth year. I applied to the Harvard-Stanford MBA program. The Navy will send supply officers. They made me a first alternate. Harvard admitted me. And so I resigned to go to Harvard Business School on my own. And you resigned, but you had fulfilled your obligation. Oh, I did five years instead of four. Yeah, yeah so five instead of four. And then you go to Harvard because, you know, business. Well, I, I didn't really know what business was. Uh -huh. But I thought, I got to make a living. You know, uh -huh. I got a wife. Right. And I'm going to have kids. I think Harvard's the best place if I can get in. Why not go there? Because so a light brand. bulb must go off at some point in time to show me how to make a living. My dad was a salesman for a wholesale oil products like Valvoline, uh -huh. and he worked a second job at night as a relief jailer and a relief movie manager. He never made 10 grand a year in his life in, in the aggregate right. from two jobs. Relief jailer? Yeah. He'd be a deputy sheriff, and he'd go in at night, and he'd be at the jail to make sure that relief guys didn't break out. Yeah. 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 I got it. Okay. Yeah. So, so there you are at Harvard, son of a relief jailer, in part. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just because it's the name brand school. You don't really know what business is, but this is an interesting, yeah. like. Oh, it was something. We had no money. Right? Seeking opportunity. We had no money. I mean, I got paid when I got out of the Naval Academy $222.30 a month. A month. Mm -hmm. $2,500 a year plus room and board. When I went to Harvard, I had no net worth. My wife was a, you know, a talented artist. She'd gone to the University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. So I ended up uh, starting business school. She got a job. I borrowed $5,000 from my father-in-law, $5,000 from my dad right. and mom, which is a lot of money to them. Yep. And, uh, and, and then fortunately, during my second year, I'd done well academically, and I got a fellowship the second year. I had the GI Bill because I was a vet. Right. So somehow we pieced it all together for two years. Had my first child, Bonnie, January of my second year, and I graduated at 29 years old with a negative net worth of 10 grand. This might have been a good $10,000. And Harvard, Harvard was interesting for me because when I first went there, it's the case method, uh -huh. and you had classes of about 100. Uh, I was one of the older ones because back then Harvard let people go straight from undergrad, and right. everybody was trying to avoid the draft in Vietnam. So very different business school you know, profile today. Uh, for the first couple of months, I just thought, I must be the dumbest guy here because I'd go to a finance class and four or five guys would just understand all the lingo and all. And then after a couple of months, two or three months, um, I figured out that the guys who spoke in finance class didn't speak in any other class because they were they had a background in banking. Right. But I, I mean, I was terrified that I was just not going to make it, turns out. I ended up a Baker Scholar in the top 5% of my class. But I worked hard at it, too, because I was a serious student, and I had a kid. Um, so I didn't ease up my second year. And I really value the experience, the case method experience. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, it's obviously a great place to be from and, and to, get, to get you into a job. One of the things I think about when I think of Harvard Business School is the alumni network and your classmates, and you – see them through your career. I don't know if your class had that. I know it has that dynamic from so many of my friends now, but did it have that then? And you've been in touch with... Well, early on, it was that way. You know, they they had uh, people come to the school to recruit, and I still had no clue what I wanted to do. I really didn't have a clue about business. Between my first and second years, I was a consultant with McKinsey. Mm-hmm. 
And one thing I learned from that experience is that I didn't want to be a consultant. Yep. And notwithstanding the fact that I stood so high in my class, I could have gotten a job. Clearly, I think on Wall Street, I refused to even accept an interview. I wanted to live in the South and be with a small company. Um, I had one real estate class and I really liked it. And I have a fairly good feel for numbers and how they relate and, you know, percentages and how to think about mm-hmm. the quantitative side of the business. And I thought this would be a great industry to get in for me. Um, I got an offer at Sea Pines mm-hmm. at Hilton Head. Uh, but I never could figure out how I could afford to go there because I'd never been to a resort. And the people who gave me the offer, and back then it was like $17,000 a year, never explained to me how I could afford to live in a high-end resort community, you know, where prices were really expensive. So instead, I went with some McKinsey guys to Florida in a a company financed by Allen, Allen and Company that was doing mariculture of pompano fish. Uh-huh. And as it turned out, it cost us more to feed the pompano than we could sell them for. So that that business proposition didn't work. And uh, Sea Pines called me back, and I went there right at the end of 1970. 1970. Yeah. And so, and so this gets you into real estate. Got me into real estate in the recreational community development business. And what was, was Sea Pines in one place or was, did it have multiple master plan communities? Yeah, and- good question. Sea Pines Company was based on Hilton Head Island, founded by Charles Frazier. Yeah. He was a Yale lawyer whose father had a part interest in the island and they d- divided it. And he took, interestingly, the southern end, which was farthest from the airport and the bridge and a lot of people thought the least desirable, but Charlie had a good vision. Uh-huh. And were a bunch of guys, a bunch of Harvard Business School guys there, um, a lot of guys who've been very successful. We were the young guns. You know, Charlie seemed to hire young, inexperienced, but smart right. people. When I got there, again, having acknowledged I didn't know much about business, I, I came in as a financial services officer to finance Palmas del Mar in Puerto Rico and Amelia Island Plantation. Um, I asked them how those properties were financed. And they said, oh, the mortgage REITs. These are the mortgage REITs of the early 70s. Right. They'll give you 100% debt. You don't need to have equity. Five over prime floating, mm-hmm. 100% debt. 101% if you were good enough. And uh, they financed three years worth of interest and, and overhead. And that was great until prime went to 12 and a half in 1974. Right. So our borrowing cost went to 17 and a half. Economy shut down. Every Sea Pines company was bankrupted in a matter of months. Right. So that was the beginning of real estate. It almost was so frightening. I almost felt like I should get out of it. Uh, but instead, I got an offer from the Beck Company in Dallas to go to Dallas as a chief financial officer of the uh-huh. Henry C. Beck Company, which was a commercial construction firm. Uh huh. And a couple things. So you went through this list of names and. We're going to talk about inside baseball a little bit too much because we have general people who aren't just real estate folks listening to the podcast. But each of the people whose names you mention became like the Hall of Fame of leaders in the Urban Land Institute 30 years later. Right. And I'm trying to imagine here's a development company that has that strong a bench of young people that you all then went through your careers together and how that happened and then what kind of what you learned from being with those folks first thing I and it knew, happened at trammell crow residential after which yeah, we're going to get to it, it certainly uh, some of my first partners at trammell crow residential were people i worked with at right. sea pines dick michaud mm-hmm. who ended up being the ceo of avalon and ran national Multi housing council as a volunteer um leonard wood i knew from there mm-hmm. bob spiker kind of my early partner group were, were younger guys, right. but they were all at Sea Pines. We hired, because it was such an attractive environment, you know, recreational community development. I mean, you lived on the ocean, you know, you're in a recreational environment, smart guys, stimulating business, just a flawed business strategy. We Charlie didn't have any equity and, right. and managed to assemble a number of recreational communities because back then, 
they would lend you 100%. Right. But you know, you find through time, I've been in this 50 years now, you find that there are periods where there's just irrational financing available to you. That was one time, but came back to bite us because, you know, we're bankrupt on the island at the end of the 74 time frame, can't sell your house, and you got to leave to find a job to feed your family. So I was fortunate. Uh-huh. Being able to go to Dallas and yeah, yeah. let me drill down estate. one more time because you said something that fits this: that those friendships and the intensity of the ongoing relationships. You're on an island and you're all young people, and you know you got to go get a beer at night or whatever it is. But that level of intensity forms a bond and a corporate culture that's pretty unique. Yeah, we had a lot of bonds, and I'm pretty good friends with all these guys. Don't see them a lot, of course. You know, life moves on, but. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, it. We had a uh, we had a, a very intense experience together at a very distressing time when we were all very young. Intense experience, distressing time. We're all very young. We'll come back to that because I think it's just a it's a fascinating thing to think about. And funny as a recruiter, I go back to people's stories and I've heard that exact dynamic from maybe half a dozen crucibles over the years, and this was the one, the grandfather of them all in the experience I have in real estate. So yeah, trying to figure out what happened there. And then, so then you moved to Dallas. Moved to Dallas was the, you know, I had to negotiate my way onto the board because they've never had a CFO, a chief financial officer of this company who was anybody other than an accountant. And I'm not sure they knew what to do with a Harvard MBA. And right. I was trying to figure out what to do too. Uh, but it was a good solid company building commercial construction. Uh-huh. Um, when I got there, I, I kind of tried to figure out uh, how to be valuable to them. I sat on their board. The recession of 74, 75 was just hitting commercial construction. I'll never forget the CEO, big guy named Les Longcryer. My first board meeting said, this company is sinking like a rock, and I don't know what to do about it. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's not something I would say to Mr. Beck if I were you. You don't want to hear that line. So he was gone a short time later. Larry Wilson came over to become the CEO. And, you know, you get through, you have to learn to get through these business cycles. Um, One of my philosophies in business is it's a cyclical economy. I don't believe you'll ever see the next downturn coming. And you just have to operate your business on the assumption that there's one coming and you're going to have to survive through it, which means... Don't over leverage. Be careful of your fixed cost, etc. cetera. Uh, some people have done a really good job of diversifying their revenue streams so that they have a lot of revenues even in downturns. You know, right. people who are managing funds and managing properties. But I was there three years. I did their first strategic plan because they'd never done one. That was pretty enlightening. We found out we lost money on one out of every five jobs and what a low margin business construction right. is. Um one of the amusing things to me, at least, of, of getting there was I came there in the high interest rate environment of the late 70s, early 80s. I assume your listeners may know that Prime went to like 21 and a half and 81 or something like that. Um, I found out that the company had its money sitting in uh, non-interest bearing accounts at the First National Bank in Dallas. Henry Beck was on the board, and I asked him, I said, Mr. Beck, is it okay if I take this money and move them to interest-bearing accounts? And he said, no problem. And so I did that. Then I started collecting the checks, because the way a general contractor works is a developer will pay you for your monthly billing. Right. Then you'll release checks to your subs. So you have this float advantage where there's a period of time where you have money in your account and your payments to the subs haven't cleared. So I made sure that we paid the subs on time, but not before time, and reinvested the money. And the next year, we made more money from interest than we did from construction in that company. Wow. That was really, that was my contribution to the Henry C. Beck Company. And I had, and had I, was, I was bored. I knew I wanted to go somewhere else. I had a great friend from Harvard Business School, Terry Golden. Uh-huh. And he was, at the time, the head of residential at Trammell Crow. Yep. And I had an idea about financing TGI Friday's franchise because I knew the guys in Dallas who owned it and they were going to franchise it. And I went to Terry and said, could I talk to the Crow family about investing with me in TGI Friday's? And he said, I have another idea. Why don't you move to Atlanta 
and restart Trammell Crow residential business in the in the east uh -huh. because Crow Pope and Land had gone by the wayside and all the other businesses in the 74, 75 downturn. So they were just getting back on their feet in 78. And he said, uh, you know, you can form your own company. Your franchise is residential. We don't have an existing business. We have some consulting we can give your company some fee responsibility on. Um, you'll have to take a $60,000 salary. At the time, I was making hundred grand. And that was a lot of money back in 1978. Yeah. And I had two kids, you know, in a house. Um, and he said, but we'll give you 40% ownership in your company. And I thought, I'm 38 years old. I have a net worth of about $100,000. I own some stock in Beck International, which would have paid me $150. So if I left, I would have gotten that $150. And I was thinking back about my dad's career experience. And he told me one time that Bill Marriott had offered him a job in the first Marriott. Wow. And at the time, my dad turned it down because he grew up during the Depression. And while he wasn't making much money, he did have enough money for us to live very modestly. And he just wouldn't take a risk. And I thought to myself, if I don't do this now, even though I'm 38 and I've got to take a big pay cut, I'll never, I'll never be an entrepreneur. I'll never take the shot. So my wife was supportive, and we got up, moved ourselves to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I went at the end of 78. They came after school was out in 79, and we bought a house on the river for $196,000. And uh -huh. um, I went and found a little teeny office space. I even brought lamps from my house to put in my office. Because I was just borrowing money. The Crow family gave me a $500,000 line of credit and said, good luck. Figure it out. Yeah. A couple of years later, when the gas crisis hit and it looked like the economy was going to really go to hell, I thought to myself, what have I done? You know, I won't be able to support my family because I didn't have any net worth in the company. I just had the money I was borrowing from the right. Crows. But, you know, like a lot of times, that too will pass. You got to just tough it out. I mean, I was doing condo conversions in Florida at the time to try to make a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. for uh, what was then Crow to Williger Company. And, you know, I had just a couple of people. Uh, but we got through that. And then I hired my first partner, which was Dick Michaud, who'd worked with me at Sea Pines. He's a Naval Academy grad and fabulous guy. He was in D.C. He'd worked with me at Sea Pines. Mm -hmm. And I said, Dick, let's start a company in D.C., so we started doing townhouse for sale development in, in Fairfax. And Terry and I kept talking about what to do, what kind of business strategy to pursue. The Crow family had a heritage, which what became Lincoln Property Company of doing apartments. And they had the villages in Dallas. And Terry said, why don't we see about getting into the apartment business? Hang on a minute. So when you start at the residential side of Trammell Crow, that doesn't mean apartments. That means single family homes, townhouses, No, no, houses, apartments were included in the definition. Right, but it wasn't exclusively apartments at that oh, moment. No, There's no, no it, business It model. was whatever. That's why I said the first thing I did condo conversions, yeah, yeah. then I did townhouse development with Dick. Right. And then, you know, we, we said, let's see if we can find out the rental apartment business, how to do that. And it was interesting to me because I had no experience in doing this. I mean, I felt like I've always had no experience at whatever I'm doing. Um, at the time, Aetna had a participating mortgage separate account program, and the Crow family owned some land in the Cumberland Office Park. Now, you know, people always say, well, you got to have drive-by to make sense out of rental apartments. This was buried in an office park. Uh -huh. There was no drive-by. Very severe slope. Aetna loaned us the money. The Aaron Krantz Group put the equity in, and we built our first apartment project in Atlanta. 280 units on a very severe slope. Built it in 12 months for $30,000 a unit all in. Mm -hmm. Sold it a year later for $50,000 a unit, and I personally made a million dollars. My net worth at that time at 42 was 250000 <laughs> And I fell in love with the apartment business. I bet you did. Yeah. This is a direct hit there. And I, and I 
tell people, said the two biggest breaks I got in my career were joining the Trammell Crow family and finding apartments. Those were, to me, the most important. I'll never forget when I came to Atlanta, Post Properties was the brand in Atlanta. In fact, it's the only branded apartment company I've really known of that's been successful. Right. John Williams, God help him, just yeah. recently passed. But he um, he was the CEO, and I had lunch with him. He said, Ron, I'm really glad to see you move to Atlanta, but I need to tell you one thing. I said, what is that, John? He said, we don't need any more apartments in Atlanta. <laughs> A little self-serving comment. And uh, so we built that project, had great success, built two more on the same land. And then I said to Dick, Dick, let's get into the apartment business in Northern Virginia. So we did that. I hired a guy named Bob Spiker, who was also with me at Hilton Head uh, in Boca Raton. And he became my South Florida partner. And then my fourth partner was Leonard Wood, who was also with me in the Sea Pines timeframe. Uh -huh. And Leonard chose to move to Tampa. So I had South Florida, yep. North Florida, Atlanta, Mark Brumley, who also was in the Sea Pines Company, ended up running the Atlanta operation once I stopped being the Atlanta developer, and Dick Michaud in Northern Virginia. And, and that's how we grew what we call then the Crow to Williger Company. It was Crow to Williger and Michaud, Crow to Williger and Spiker. Yep. So we had Trammell's name. So question about that. At that point in time, they give you that geography. So you just had the East Coast. That's to go right. figure something that's, out that's in residential. Correct. That's correct. It becomes multifamily. You start developing partners in each of these markets. Correct. Guys you knew, you trusted, yeah. and go do business with, and then you hone in on multifamily. Let's break for a moment from the conversation with Ron for some commentary from our sponsor, JLL. We're going to hear from Christine Espenshade, who leads JLL multifamily in the mid-Atlantic region. Christine is one of JLL's 2,400 capital market specialists around the world and is a 20-year commercial real estate veteran. Christine, thanks for joining the conversation. As we're hearing from Ron, the apartment business has always been evolving. What are you seeing as the major trend in design and conceptualization in apartments today? You know, when you walk into an apartment building today, especially the new urban products that people are developing, you walk into something and feel very much in an oasis. And I think that's really important as apartment units have gotten smaller, the developers have created these common area spaces that people can socialize with outside of their homes. And having the apartment industry really think more hotel-like, I think has really brought us into this next century and made renting something people want to do for a much longer period of time rather than just a stopgap before somebody buys a home. Christine, thanks for the commentary. Now back to our conversation with Ron Terwilliger. So let's talk about it. A different subject that I'm curious about is the Trammell Crow model of finding a partner, trusting them, giving them a franchising, and let them run. Yeah. And that happened on the commercial side, concurrent with the multifamily side. And it's a very regional concept. And then you take an entrepreneur, but then you had sub-entrepreneurs because you had your partners being partners with... Yeah, region, regional and local. Yeah. real estate's inherently a local business, right? Right. So while I would, when you build out your organization, I was the national CEO. But at the time, I'm the East Coast CEO. Right. Then I had Dick Michaud in Washington, D.C. I gave him the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And so he hired people in Washington to do the development in Washington under him. And he supervised the growth in the Northeast. Same with Bob Spiker in Florida. Right. So the Crow model, and God bless Trammell, you know, people have asked me about um, people who have been my mentors. And I point out Charlie Frazier and Trammell Crow. And I said, Charlie Frazier, who was my first senior boss, I actually worked for Jim Light at the time. Um, Charlie was a very charismatic visionary who had a sense of community development that was new at the time. He, he he made sure that we had an architectural review committee and had housing developments that were natural, blend into the natural. He had, you know, cart paths and walking trails and very natural environment, it, which is which is sea pines. Uh -huh. What he didn't have was any risk management perspective. Right. It was kind of like things are going to be the same forever. So... 
my career with him was, you know, four years because basically we all went bankrupt. They kind of held on to sea pines and all, but that was that was the thing he missed. Trammell Crow, mm-hmm. incredibly successful after World War II, intuitively knew we needed to add to the built environment. GIs coming back, buying houses, people needing offices, etc. You know, started. I'm told on Stemmons Freeway with John Stemmons building warehouses, diversified into office, right? Retail. So, you know, it was a diversified commercial development company. When Trammell did his residential, which I think followed, he hired this broker named Mac Pogue, and they started what was called the Lincoln Property Company. And they did rental apartments. They may have done other product lines. I'm only familiar with their rental apartments. That company still exists today. Mac is still there. Um, Trammell has passed, as I think most know. Trammell, his approach was find a local partner. Again, real estate's inherently local. Find a local partner, work with him on developing a business strategy, provide the reputation and the financial muscle, which didn't require a lot back then. You know, Peter Lindemann's written about the equitization of real estate in the early 90s, but Back then, you could do an awful lot with debt if you had sponsorship people believed in. Yeah. So Lincoln built out, along with Baker Crow and a couple others, there were two or three other residential entities pre-'74. Right. And Lincoln was the biggest. 1974, the crisis that I described at Sea Pines hit. Everybody was in trouble. And Lincoln... And Mac and Trammell decided they'll go their own way. And so Lincoln basically left the Crow family. But um, what Trammell created, which I think was unique, and I see it in business again today, he created an alignment of interest with the people that work with him. And I, I don't say for him. In a sense, we felt like we worked for him, but we worked with him. We were partners. Yeah, He had a partnership concept where, you know, it's a little bit of a rising tide thing. If you do well, Crow family will do well. If you do poorly, Crow family will do poorly. So needed to make sure your motivation was right. And if you had money in the game, like at one point I got to where everything invested at Trammell Crow Residential was a dollar of mine and a dollar of the Crow family. Perfect alignment. We had a perfect financial alignment. Mm-hmm. They would mentor you as much as needed. Terry Golden was my initial partner, but Terry was my classmate at Harvard Business School. We didn't have any more experience. We we were kind of learning it together. Um, but it was a great model. And, and, and one of the things I always tell people that's really important about what you do is that you really enjoy it. And I had periods when I was in the Navy and when I was at the Beck Company where I didn't really want to go to work on Monday morning. I mean, it was like, you know, really, this is not that much fun. But my 30 years at Crow. And, you know, so should be since it was essentially my company. We're always great. I love Monday mornings. I love seeing my partners coming to work and what we were doing. It was uh-huh. so much fun. And, uh, and and it turned out to be very profitable for all of us. So that was the pro model. So w- when did you become a pyramid scheme, <laughs> right? Because you started as partner to grow the East and all of a sudden you're adding partners. Were you very long yourself the person developing in, say, the Atlanta market while your college Yeah, were- no, for, for the first couple of years, and I was learned it on the job, I thought, just like I, when I was in the Navy and I was a 25-year-old uh, supply officer in a submarine, and right. I was supposed to feed everybody and all that, if you didn't trust the storekeepers and the chefs under you, you're in trouble. You didn't know that much. So when, when I'm learning the business right. in Atlanta, having uh-huh. never built an apartment project, I found out who post hired as an architect. His name was Niles Bolton. I hired Niles Bolton to be my architect. I found out who post hired for engineers. Then I basically called on the property management companies to help me assess the marketability of a site. So I leaned on a lot of people who had a lot of experience in the business. And that's how I did it for the first two or three years. And I had a little running room. And so then as I hired Dick Michaud in D.C., and Bob Spiker and Leonard Wood, I elevated myself out of the Atlanta development, turned it over to Mark Brumley, 
Right. And and did, basically was their mentor and a fiduciary for myself and the Crow family. When did you know that you wanted to have an organization below you rather than be the person developing in a given city? Yeah, well, I, I think I'm naturally ambitious or <laughs> aggressive or whatever it is. They gave me a territory. I knew I couldn't do it myself. I wasn't going to be in Boston assessing the Boston market. I couldn't be everywhere at once. So my idea, and it really was following on what had done been done historically with the Crow organization, was to recruit partners who would be local partners. And then Got for it. the good ones, promote them to regional partners. And they had partners under them in the markets. So I did that for about five or six years in the East. Mm -hmm. uh, Terry Golden decided that he wanted to move on and they had to decide who to replace him with. And I think my organization in the East was the strongest. So I got the nod. I got to ask to move to Dallas. And my wife, now my ex-wife, but my wife <laughs> said, uh, you know, we don't want to move the kids. I don't want to move the kids. You can commute if you feel the need to go to Dallas. And I, I knew I was going to be working and traveling all over the country. I ended up with 23 offices. And I thought, I got to spend a little time with my daughters growing up. So I prevailed upon Trammell to let me do the job from Atlanta. I think I was the first person running one of his entities that didn't live in Dallas. But Dallas mm -hmm. would be a time sink with people coming into town and, you know, mm -hmm. entertaining and all that. So I did it from Atlanta. I took over um, in 19... 85, if I remember correctly. Uh -huh. So I'd been there about six years, and we changed the name because we were at that time Crow Western, Crow Terwilliger, and Chasewood, and we changed the name to Trammel Crow Residential. And take us through 1985 till the SNL crisis, because that was probably the first big hiccup, and you grow up until then, I'm thinking. Yeah, 20 well, that's right. I mean, we, we were pursuing not exclusively apartments, but predominantly apartments. I had a couple of single-family home-building companies, uh -huh. um, but let's assume it was the apartment yeah, business. Yeah, let's stick with it. And you know, we we had capital that uh -huh. continued to be interested. Uh, it and, was. And did capital come in through each of the offices, or did you manage most of the capital relationships? Well, I, I ended up with. Uh, I actually had a really quality chief financial officer named Randy Pace, but he was more a chief administrative officer. And he helped me with all these partner relations and all that. In terms of the f financing, mm -hmm. I would spend a lot of time in Boston, New York, Hartford, wherever, Chicago, wherever the money was, cultivating mm -hmm. relationships. Because most of these guys are relationship lenders, right? They're, right. They, the, the thing I say to investors is the most important thing you decide is who to do business with. There are a lot of guys who build apartments. Yeah. So I used to spend a lot of time on the road doing financing. Right. Okay, so part of your role as you're expanding nationally is to be the person kind of managing those really core relationships. Right. But then you have 23 offices, and you probably run out of Seapines people at some point <laughs> in terms of yeah. growing those businesses. So how do you recruit, find, form the relationships with people who you can entrust with all these things we've described. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because probably because I was an MBA, uh -huh. I had a bias towards hiring MBAs, not necessarily from Harvard. We got a few. Or Wharton, many of whom wanted to go to New York. But we found since we were a national company, hiring MBAs from the better schools in the regions. North right. Carolina, UNC is one where a whole lot of my partners came from. And then at some point, it became up to Dick Michaud to hire his, his partner for Northern Virginia and his partner for New Jersey and his partner for Boston. And I helped when I could. And I always interviewed the senior guys. Right. So essentially, you know, if, if somebody had been in the, in the Tremel Crow culture with me long enough you know, then I trusted them to identify people who they would trust with their net worth and with their business. So, you know, in terms of characteristics, I like people who were smart, particularly had an understanding of numbers. I think in the business, if you don't have a feel for numbers, you don't know how the 
business comes together. It's, you can't really run one of these businesses. Although if you're a numbers geek, then it's too deep. You have yeah, to no, understand no. the meaning of the numbers. numbers. The numbers are just one dimension. That's right. I like guys who are also personalities. Although interestingly, we've done we did a s survey of uh, extrovert introvert. You know, uh -huh. I had a guy come in one time and found out there were only two high extroverts in the company: me and Dick Michaud. Really, which was interesting. A lot of people, you know, because it's not a pejorative term to be an introvert. It's just how you like engaging, and right. you know, not a lot of introverts or people in between. In the company, but people who were external. I mean, we had a work play environment. You know, I got these guys into skiing, diving, biking. We played golf together, tennis together. We were really good friends, although I would say it's business first because I had to let a few guys go that I was very friendly with for lack of performance over the years. But that my partners were really um, generally very good to be around you know, loved the work play environment, worked really hard, anxious to make money for their family, good family people. Um, frequently I was accused of hiring only athletes, but you know, people I enjoyed being with and it was fun. Wow. And, and so let's keep chatting about those folks and, and come back to a couple words you've used. So one you, word you've used through the conversation is guys, because it was all guys back then. Yeah, you know, I'm very, <laughs> it's today, you use the term guys to not necessarily mean only men, but we had in, in our property management business, and at one time we had 91,000 units in property management. Right. We were the largest in the country in 1991, back in the good old days when they paid you 5%. I had a woman and a man who ran that business, but yeah. it was predominantly female. Our senior property leadership, management. property right. management was. As much as I tried to find women in the development business, given that we had an MBA bias, in the MBA classes back in those days, in the 80s and 90s, there were so few women, mm -hmm. and frequently they didn't want to be developers. So we had one in North Carolina. I, I tried to get them where I could find them because I used to chair the Wharton Real Estate Advisory Board, and there would just be two or three women, right. and they frequently want to go to New York or want to go into consulting. It's very hard to get women. I think it still is today in the development business and the construction business. Uh -huh. um, so we we were, in terms of property management, predominantly female. Of course. But in development and construction, not so much. It has changed. It, people argue with me whether it's changed. It hasn't changed enough. Has it really changed? I think it has. But what the period of time you're talking about, it was the guys, yeah. and that, I don't mean that in a negative fashion. Oh no, yeah, because we're all we're all tuned. I mean, my wife was a uh, investor. She worked in the business for 25 years right. for a whole dump of di different lenders. Uh -huh. So obviously, women have very significant roles. But at the time, and maybe it's different today. I didn't see many in development. They didn't seem to be gravitating development, nor construction. Mm -hmm, fair. And then a second word you used in describing your partners is the word net worth. You keep coming back to the word net worth. Someone put their net worth on the line, or at this point in time, your net worth or someone's was X, and then it became Y. Yeah. Is the focus on growing one's net worth versus just doing deals? Is there a meaning to that word as a driver? Maybe net worth makes you think longer term. I don't know the right. Yeah, no, I, it, it does. Um, I think we all aspire. Now here, I'm a guy, right? I told you my dad never made $10,000 yeah. a year in his life. So I never had any expectations of becoming wealthy. Uh -huh. It's just totally a surprise. But in, in the Crow system, you know, basically we ask people to reinvest the profits they made on deals right. in their business mm -hmm. until the business had excess capital. We had a system we called the... Uh, DAB system, division account balance system. So if you came in as a partner um, and you had 15% of the, of the deal, right. but you had no money, then the Crow family and I and the senior partners that they had, we had to lend your share of the money to do uh -huh. the deal, right? Uh -huh. And then if the deal was successful, then you had to pay us back and then you had to build up your own capital account in the business. Right. And then when we had more capital in a division, then we needed to do continued business. We'd make what we called excess working capital distributions. So I think virtually all of the people who came with us aspired 
to build up a significant net worth. But I told them, because of my experience at Hilton Head, right. with over-leveraging, I said, if you join us, you're going to get rich slowly with us because we're not going to swing for the fences. We're not going to take high leverage, extraordinarily risks. Mm-hmm. We're here for a career, not for a two or three year upside. And you have to be prepared to ride through a recession with us because there's going to be another one and we won't see it coming. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of person that came with us. They were career focused. And as it turned out, until we had a few exits down the line, I, I almost remember nobody leaving us for a better approach because we had a collegial environment, we had a partner-like environment, and we were all about a rising tide and everybody making money together. Right. Well, and and I know a lot of your former partners, and in each of the markets in which they work, they have made careers continue to do this business, whether with the company you were with or what the subsequent companies were. Right. But everyone looked at this as a career to keep going. And yeah. Kind of building net worth or, or building a legacy in that market. Well, one of the wonderful things about the apartment business, other than inherently the fact that you're providing housing with people, which mm-hmm. is great, is that in a downturn, if you build a well-managed, well-located apartment project that has the right functionality, the right kind of kitchens and bathrooms and all, which all the professionals would do, it's going to stay full. It stays full at lower rents than you thought it would, but mm-hmm. it'll stay full. Mm-hmm. You can make your debt service. So right. that's not true of see-through office buildings or you know, maybe true of industrial, maybe true of self-storage. Those are the only two businesses that I know that from a risk-reward standpoint rival multifamily. So then the recession comes, the SNL crisis. Yeah, the 90, 90, 91, 92. Yeah, so talk about kind of making it through that, talking about the pain for you and your partners, and and you're above you, so for Crow, and then talk about how you made it through, and then some of making it through was a bunch of IPOs. That's a lot to yeah, unpack. Yeah, well, we'd had a good run general in the 80s. There was a high interest rate environment, 81, 79, 80, 81. But far and large, it was, it was a decent decade. Toward the end of the decade, the economy started into recession, SNL crisis, other things. In Texas, it came a little sooner. The Trammell Crow Commercial Company was heavily focused. They were national, but there was a lot of their assets in Texas. They didn't kind of make it through 1989, if I remember correctly. They kind of lost their guarantee and stopped becoming a developer. A lot of the right. partners left and rolled up. So we were apartment developers. We had a good pipeline. But then what, when it slowed and it became apparent you couldn't get any new development, we had to realize that we had to live on the revenues coming from the fees that still came off of development, both construction, because we were self-performing construction, and development fees, and whatever came from our property management business. We really didn't have any assets that we owned were cash flowing. So it was a desperate time for a lot of people in real estate. Yeah. Trammell Crow. Family, we're dealing with the Trammell Crow company and their own issues. So I was pretty much on my own, I felt, in terms of my partners and I figuring out how to get through. Sadly, because other than property management, we didn't have recurring income that wasn't related to development. We had to cut back our overhead significantly. Um, we basically asked some people to take a lower salary, and we just had to let some people go. Mm-hmm. I hated it. These were nice people. They didn't deserve it in the sense it wasn't performance related. Just a fact of life in a cyclical economy. And so we toughed it out, got through it, came out on the other side and started developing again in 94. But 91, 92, 93, we had no new development. During that time, uh, what Peter Lindman calls the equitization of real estate began. And I remember going to one of Ken Rosen's conferences on the West Coast with Chuck Berman, who was a great partner of mine. Chuck said to me, you know, I'm so frustrated trying to get uh, financing for my projects in the Northeast because there's not a lot of population growth up here. And he said, I'd like to explore a real estate investment trust because they were just now 
coming into fashion. Many of us hadn't even heard of real estate investment trust. And then some companies started going that way. Post properties went that way. I think John Williams had a lot of debt he needed to refinance, a lot of it foreign debt. And he found this a good way to pay down the debt and to bring in equity capital, sell off part of the company. So I came back from that meeting on the West Coast and called Dick Michaud, who was in Washington. I said, Dick, Chuck and I met with this guy named Fred Cabin, and he talked to us about doing uh, a REIT in the Northeast. But I honestly think it would be a much better real estate investment trust if we included the Mid-Atlantic and have much more bulk and geography. I'd like you to stay private with me, and Chuck can go as the chairman and CEO. And Dick said, let me think about it over the weekend. Call me back and said, you know, I think it's a good idea. I think I'd like to go as the chairman and CEO, make Chuck the president and COO. And Avalon was born in November of 1993, which is now Avalon Bay and arguably the best of the apartment REITs. I say arguably because I'm biased, but it's they've done really well. Chuck and Bryce Blair and now Tim Naughton, all guys that were Great my people. partners. All your partners. Great people. So... Um, then we looked around and said, that's not bad. You know, we took operating partnership units and, you know, to defer taxes, the Crow family and I did. And so we said, hey, we've got a, a bunch of properties in Texas and Atlanta and in the Mid-South. Uh, why don't we put together a second REIT, which ended up being called Gables. Leonard was the natural to be the chairman and CEO, but he made a very different choice than Dick. He said... I don't want to go public um, from our division partners. Let's pick uh, a CEO. And that became Mark Brumley. His peers really picked him. And he became the chairman and CEO of Gables. And Gables Residential Trust went public in, I think, March of, 2000, uh, March of 1994. And then I just started building back. Um, Leonard was the only senior partner left. And I said, Leonard, you and I, we got the whole country. And I talked to Michael Milaw who is now the the you know external financial guy for Mill Creek. And mm -hmm. we'd done some business with Michael and asked him to join and be our external financial uh, officer so that I could be a line officer until I built back the organization. Promoted uh, Ken Valick, who, who is now the CEO of Trammell Crow Residential. And we just built it back and then... A subsequent uh, thing happened is the REITs got a few years behind them. They decided that they wanted to bulk up. Some of them wanted to diversify geographically. You know, initially, there was the local sharpshooter approach, like Post Properties in Atlanta, and they're a dominant developer. And the REIT analysts thought that was good. Then they decided it wasn't good. You really needed some geographical diversity so the REITs started bulking up. Some of them tried to add development and or construction capability. And we looked at taking all the Trammell Crow public in 1997. But we were financed in a one-off basis with different uh, investors in each of our deals. And we concluded it was just too difficult to try to do something. So I said to the guys, let's look at local executions. These were the people who didn't go in the initial wave, the whole West Coast, for example. Right. And we ended up selling uh, regions off. Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce Ward took the West to BRE. And we had Chris Wheeler in South Florida. They went with Gables. Mm -hmm. Then we sold our North Florida portfolio. So that, now we'd kind of sold the whole company in pieces over a period of about five years. And uh, that's when I said to Leonard Wood, I had breakfast with him. I said, Leonard, you ready to do this again? And he said, you know, I don't think so. I think I want to start my own company. So Wood Partners was born out of that. And, and a couple of his partners went with him. That actually you know, turned out to be a very successful company. Leonard's no longer active, but it's still around. Yeah. And then Bruce Ward stayed with BRE for a few years until his contract was over. Then I think he bought their third-party management business, and he started Alliance, and he's done fabulously well. Amazingly well. Yeah. Picked up John Ripple, who was our senior partner in Houston, and their partners in that business. Uh -huh. And then, as you noted, in, in Clyde Holland was my partner in the Pacific Northwest. He came out of the Great Recession in terrific shape, and Holland Partners now is doing very well. So I'm proud of these guys. They've done terrific we spun off. I retired at the end of 2008, 
Um, Hang on a sec. So what happened between, when did all the spinoffs happen, but then you had another six or seven years where, as you said, you rebuilt Trammell Crow Residential. Yeah. So you declared victory by shrinking and making a boatload of money and then having all your <laughs> and, and progeny go off. Yeah, and then reinvesting it, incidentally. Yeah. Crow family and I had a tremendous amount of money. Dollar for dollar, I funded with them. A lot of money. Right. There was a great period, really, from 94 to 2008, where a lot of us made most of our net worth. I certainly did. Right. A few interruptions, but nothing terribly serious until the Great Recession. Bruce, you know, when he went, when he went off, he right. just started Alliance when he got done with his BRE responsibility. Gables continued on their way. Uh -huh. So I had a lot of the team there. I had kind of my third senior management group. Bill McDonald, mm -hmm. who is now the CEO of Mill Creek. Ken Valak, who's now the CEO of Trammel Crow Residential. And uh, Mike Collins on the West Coast. So that was kind of my third senior management team. And we built that up and harvested a lot of properties, tried to sell the company, had an offer of a billion three, put it under contract, mm -hmm. and then the debt markets went away. It's kind of everything's timing, right? Russell Ruble crisis, yeah. Debt, the, the, the debt markets went away. You know, when the Great Recession hit, I, I didn't have the stomach to go through a whole round of additional layoffs. I'd done right. that. I was wealthy enough and old enough that I wanted to turn and pivot towards philanthropy and start spending more time in the nonprofit community and giving my money away. So I retired in 2008. So let, let's, we're going to take a break in a minute <laughs> to get to part two of the conversation, but let's kind of finish up this part of the story because I think in that next <laughs> recession, the company split in two again because it was a brutal recession. Right. So Mill Creek went one way and Trammell Crow Residential took the other assets, but then Trammell Crow Residential comes back again. Yeah. You're no longer there, but well, any I comments mean, on that? The, the, the kind of arrangement all the partners had was while you're here, you're in the deals. When you leave, you keep your ownership in the deals that exist, but you're not in any new deals going mm -hmm. forward. I wasn't there. For whatever reason, in 2010, I think the time frame is, Charlie Brindell, who succeeded as the CEO of Trammell Crow Residential when I retired, decided that they needed to re they, they needed to find a new capital partner. He found the North Carolina Pension Fund. Right. And basically took with him virtually all of the Trammell Crow Residential partners, except Ken Valak. Ken Valak stayed back to asset management, what we still owned. Once we got through the hard times, the workouts. And, and, and I, I would say, one thing I wanted to say for record, and this goes to the Crow family and, and Ken, when I went into, when I retired and we went into the Great Recession, I had guaranteed $3 billion worth of debt. Now, the guarantee structure at Crow was you sign personally, but you exclude your personal assets, but it's all your business assets. It's the whole company. We paid back every cent of that $3 billion with interest. So we have a clean slate. Ken, Crow family, myself, and all the other partners. Mm -hmm. That was all paid back. Ken worked on that for a few years, Ken Valak. Right. Did a fabulous job, great fiduciary for me and the Crow family and himself and, and the other partners. We're pretty much out of all those assets, as you may guess, 10 years later. About four years ago, Harlan and Ken got together and said, why don't we start building back? Trammell Crow Residential. Harlan said, I'll back you. And so Ken became the CEO. He was my senior partner for many years. He's a wonderful guy and a very smart guy and a very likable guy. So he's built back a very significant company. He's also added um, the uh, industrial side of the business. So he does both of those hmm. for Crow now. So TCR is now one of the largest developers of apartments once again. During my time there, we were the largest most of the 23 years I ran it. Um, and Mill Creek is one of the largest. And Alliance is one of the largest. So there's a and lot wood. of... And Wood Partners. And Wood Partners we can is keep one going, of the largest. But... Yeah, that's right. And Gables and Holland. So a lot of these guys, your point obviously is a lot of my partners, extraordinary guys. They happen to be guys, entrepreneurs. 
and uh, much younger than me, and, and they weren't ready to retire. They wanted to continue building apartments, which we're all very fond of. Uh-huh. And did you find any sadness or, you know, when Leonard said, I'm going to go build my own company? Because uh, to me, the two of you 20 years ago were freaking frack. I couldn't imagine you separated. But when people go off and then create their own businesses that compete with the business that has your name on it, that most feel both good and bad. I don't know the right words for well, it. Well, comp- it really only happened with Leonard because the others spun off when we sold the businesses. Yeah. In Leonard's case, um, he'd been with me for a long time. And my own attitude is, if if I couldn't provide Leonard with the opportunity and the environment that he wanted to stay in, then he should go do what he wanted. That's I had no resentment towards it. We remained mm-hmm. really good friends throughout. And of course. it's a big world, you know. It's not like if Leonard's building, I can't build. I mean, we can both build. And right. so he took two or three people that wanted to go with him, one of whom was his college roommate, and right. and built a really fine company and more power to him. So yeah, it didn't uh I was disappointed uh-huh. if he was going to stay. It was a little unclear how aggressive he was going to be, but then he got into the business and got on a roll and sold a half interest in his company. And yeah. and now he and I live in the same community in Florida together and play golf together and go fishing together. And I love it. So it, it's funny because you're it, through our conversation, you've described in large part the family tree of the modern apartment business. And through that family tree, maybe – because it comes from same family, sometimes families fracture and have lots of miserable dynamics. In other dynamics, they become brothers, sisters, and friendly competitors. And you're describing an industry that I think has that connection of friendly competitor and competitors nonetheless. Yeah. But that's a more collaborative kind of industry than you see in other sectors of the economy. Yeah. And, and in a sense, you're only a competitor if you're trying to find the, buy the same site. If not, right. you know. You basically find a site and find a f- financer and somebody who used to be with you finds a different site, maybe in the same market, and they do their thing. And so it's there's room for a lot of people. The, the broader context is how many apartments does the United States need and are we right. serving them with the right product and um, in the right volume. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. JLL is a leader in comprehensive multifamily services, advising on everything from dispositions to financings. If you're interested in learning more about their work in the multifamily business, visit www.us.jll.com backslash voices. That's www.us.jll.com backslash voices.